This is Structured Rambling, a podcast about ideas from literature and about literature. Episodes can focus on a single text or a theme from multiple texts. My name is Paul Sonsby. Welcome. I recall, good listener, a time in the very late 1990s, the rumblings that there was coming an ambitious series of films adapting J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. I remember that the majority of Tolkien nerds, and yes, I was already one of them, but maybe not one of the elite nerds. Is there such a thing? Being excited, and they're counting down with annoying consistency the days until the first film's release. Those movies were amazing. Hugely successful, artistically lauded, and essentially they have become much a part of the fantasy film zeitgeist Star Wars, Harry Potter, and the MCU. They weren't perfect films. They took liberties in their adaptations, and they made some divisive decisions. But still, they're an amazing hallmark of turning a beloved novel into a film relatively successfully. The same filmmakers unwisely attempted to adapt The Hobbit into the same world and feel over three extremely long films to limited success. There are great moments in those books, or sorry, in those movies, but the reality is The Hobbit is a fairy tale written with some uncertainty as to what it is, and Lord of the Rings, its greater sequel, and attempting to give the same look and feel can't work. And that's not entirely Peter Jackson's fault. Because apparently Tolkien himself began reworking The Hobbit after the publication and success of The Lord of the Rings, making it reflect the serious tone of his first book. In my opinion, this would have ruined The Hobbit and, frankly, most of our childhoods. That's right, folks. It's another Tolkien episode, but this one is written in anticipation of something rather than about something that's been out for 50 years. Namely, anticipating Amazon's Rings of Power. I think it's called The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Yeah. The series that is coming out next month. This podcast is in response to the Tolkien nerds of both books and films. We're all worried that this series will ruin their understanding and appreciation of the already existent works, both literary and cinematic. And I'm here to tell you that it's almost impossible to ruin the book upon which this series is based on, The Silmarillion, because there is no definitive Silmarillion, and even if there was, the part of the Silmarillion this show was based on is itty-bitty. The good news for you, gentle listener, is you don't even have to read the Silmarillion to listen to this episode. I'm going to give you some broad ideas, but I'm here to defend the concept of adapting it into a TV show. The Silmarillion is definitely Tolkien's most divisive work. 
This is troubling because it's not even a proper novel. It's a collection. It's basically a book of editorial decisions. Millions of people have read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, but fewer have attempted The Silmarillion. Fewer still have finished it, and far fewer still love it. I've read it multiple times, and I've grown to enjoy it, but I love its existence more than its story. So what is The Silmarillion? Well, the short and not quite right answer is it's a series of legends and stories from before the Hobbit, events in the first and second age of Middle-earth. It begins with creation and ends with a summary of the War of the Ring, essentially the Lord of the Rings story. It contains many stories alluded to in the Lord of the Rings, which gave that novel its famous depth, a feeling of seeing just one episode in a much grander world. For example, Aragorn tells the hobbits briefly the tale of Baron and Luthien. It appears in the Silmarillion, the tale of Baron and Luthien, though uh, as one of many versions. J.R.R. Tolkien died in 1973, and his son Christopher, writer and professor in his own right, became his father's literary executor. Tolkien Sr. was infamous for writing and rewriting stories and novels, going back to the beginnings and rewriting over and over again. It's why it took him over a decade to finish The Lord of the Rings, even accounting for the occurrence of a Second World War in that composition. For something like Baron and Luthien, it began as a poem, and there are at least three solid versions of it, plus dozens of minor revisions. Christopher inherited 60 years of confusing tales and notes, often written in pencil, then written over again in ink. The last 50 years of Christopher's own life involved going through and accounting for all of this. And two years after Christopher's death, there's still tons to go through and the scholarship is still going strong. Publishers knew there was more Middle-earth material than the two Hobbit stories. Tolkien had even presented a mess of notes from the Silmarillion as a sequel to The Hobbit, which was rejected with confusion by publishers before he began The Lord of the Rings. Then, after the massive success of The Lord of the Rings, once it was split into three far cheaper publications, and after the appendices at the end of The Return of the King enticed his readership with hints of what lay within all that depth, publishers slavered for more. In the last 20 years of his life, Tolkien worked on on materials but published almost nothing. Upon his death, the pressure moved to Christopher, who didn't have much time to go through a century almost of work. In 1977, he, Christopher, published a quote-unquote novel called The Silmarillion, claiming he had to make some very lethal decisions about what to put in and what to leave out. When published, The Silmarillion was met with confusion and some disappointment. Just what was this thing? There wasn't a hobbit to be found. Considerable criticism was leveled at Christopher himself. Some even claimed that it was fake, that he had written it all and pretended it was his father's work. 
Christopher apparently was very frustrated by this because of all the pressure he'd received to get something out, there had those who had who had uh, rushed him and complained to him then complained about the rushed nature of the result. Poor guy. The published Silmarillion is now considered canon. It contains the creation myth, the gods, the fall, the major part being the Quintus Silmarillion, the story of various groups of elves and how the descendants of one great elf named Feanor pursue the three jewels called the Silmarils that give the book its name. It also contains the arrival of men and dwarves. Then there are the great heroic tales, the that of Baron and Luthien, Turin Turambar, Tuor, and the fall of Gondolin, and the story of Erendil. These last two are never given in complete form, which is interesting because they are the oldest pieces of the legendarium. The, the tale of the fall of Gondolin of Erendil can both be traced to 1916. The fall of Gondolin itself is a key moment in Tolkien's stories. It's his fall of Troy, meaning the fall of a great city that leads to like Aeneids and Odysseys and all these other arguably better stories. And the story of Erendil operates as a sort of Christ figure. Versions of these, like I said, date back to 1962. And yet, as important as they are, there's no complete version of either of them. For better or for worse, in 1977, the Silmarillion was published. Then, an understandably frustrated Christopher began the process of going through all versions and all notes of all stories. Six years after the Silmarillion's forced publication, Christopher began releasing, uh, over 13 years, the 12-volume History of Middle-Earth, which took stock of every version of every story completed or not with extensive notes and commentary by Christopher himself. Basically over 12 books a son was going through his dad's filing cabinets and writing essays about what he encountered. It's a labor of love and Christopher Tolkien for as much as I think he was a crotchety old old stodger he deserves some serious kudos for the literary work that he did. The first two volumes of the history of Middle-earth, The Book of Lost Tales, Part 1, and The Book of Lost Tales, Part 2, these are about the material that appears in the Silmarillion. And there are other places uh, uh, all through the 12 volumes. And one volume is already longer than the published Silmarillion. What's striking is just what a difficult job poor Christopher had in what to select and what to leave out. Here are a couple examples. A version of the Baron and Luthien story, which is a love story plus a quest, sees a minstrel named uh, Daeron, who is in love with Luthien and commits jealous acts of evil. In another version, he's her, her brother. In the tragic tale of Turin Turumbor, another version... Um, uh, Turin Turumbar is essentially a really dramatic and nasty version of the, the Volsong saga. But anyways, um, in a version featuring the extended story of Meme, the petty dwarf who commits an act of betrayal, Christopher would later publish 
these notes with the Tale of Tomb Tombar in a single novel called The Children of Hurin, which I would argue is superior to what appeared in the Silmarine. I wouldn't argue that. I would emphatically stand behind that statement. Many characters have multiple names for, of course, the reason that Tolkien's legendarium exists is he's playing with invented languages. The whole purpose for Middle-earth is for him to find a place to play with his languages. Names are altered. Names are sometimes switched. Names are given to other characters. The god of evil, Sauron's master, is called Melko, then Melkor, then finally Morgoth. The original stories of the gods were couched in a framing narrative about a lost sailor named, sailor named Ariel who hears these great tales. Christopher had to decide the canon of the whole legendarium, and it was not a hard and fast system. In fact, I think given more time and, and more financial backing, Christopher probably would have released the history of Middle-earth. Unlike the Lord of the Rings films and the Hobbit films, the Silmarillion has no book that was Tolkien's signed off publication. That is J.R.R. Tolkien. The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings had books that were out there that could be honored or ruined or somewhere in between. Famously, Tolkien actually never wanted a film adaptation of his books at first and he was very skeptical of the idea in time he started to work with the idea but nothing came from it christopher and all other family members save one of jrr's jrr's grandsons refused to help or endorse with uh, sorry help with or endorse the peter jackson films of 20 years ago um christopher even tried to sue them and the end result was no material from the published Silmarillion, which had Christopher's copyright, not his father's, because he was editor, could appear on film while Christopher was alive. My point? There is no definitive version of these stories for the people of Amazon to mess up. I granted they're the people of Amazon. They'll probably mess something up, but there's no perfect version to be true to. There's just Christopher's choices. Some he regretted having to make. There's a published Silmarillion, but there's no perfect Silmarillion. The Silmarillion, as published, contains creations and the first acts of the gods. There are the very short stories called the Aina Lundale and the Valaquenta. Then... Probably the main part of the story is the 200 pages called the Quenta Silmarillion, the legendary history of the elves from their beginnings. They're factioning into groups like the Noldar and the Teleri. Their war with Morgoth, the god of evil. And it ends with four great tales, as I've just said, Turin Turinbar, Baron Luthien, Tuor, and the fall of Gondolin and Earendil. This all comprises the first age. And it's a very good idea to leave this out of an adaptation because it's elf-centric most of the time. It's all grand and it's mythic in scale and it involves too much of the gods. The gods who are essentially unmentioned in The Lord of the Rings. It wouldn't convert well to film. But to mention it, 
keeps its sense of depth so important in Tolkien's world. Near as I can tell, the Rings of Power, the Amazon series, is set in Middle-earth's second age and is based on the Alcalbaleth, a story that is 16 pages in the published Silmarillion and referred to by Christopher Tolkien in the published Silmarillion as an appendage, not part of the Silmarillion proper. I think this is a very smart decision on the part of the producers. The Middle Earth of the Second Age is close enough to the one of the that appears in the Lord of the Rings books and films. The map is mostly sim- similar as opposed to the Beleriand of the Silmarillion, and many fil- familiar characters appear. It's essentially Tolkien's Atlantis myth about the ruin of the island of Numenor. Of course, Aragorn, Striders, descended from the Numenorians, and this will be how Isildur, uh, Aragorn's ancestor, the guy who cuts the ring from Sauron's hand, and his father, Elendil, escape the ruin of Numenor and establish Gondor. People like Galadriel and Elrond take part in these events, and Sauron, the familiar guy who gave light, pun intended, to uh, the flaming eyeball in the movies, he's the chief antagonist, not Morgoth. However, unlike the Quintessilmarillion, the Akalabeth, Akalabeth, this thing, is short. It has very little dialogue, little non-epic storytelling, which leads uh, leaves a lot of room for expansion. Nerds being nerds, they're going to complain about any variations. There's already been rumblings of this from the previews and from the from the trailers. Complaints about the appear- the appearance of Harfoots, nomadic ancestors of the Hobbits. To me, this is potentially a great idea because the charm of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings that the Silmarillion lacks is the framing of Hobbits as storytellers and everymen. This can only help the series. A second complaint I've heard is over the appearance of black and Asian actors. First, give your head a shake, it's 2022. Secondly, though Tolkien was adamant that Middle-earth would reflect Anglo-Saxon England of the pre-Norman conquest of 1066, times have changed. Tolkien decided this between writing The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. That's why he starts using the Anglo-Saxon word orc in Lord of the Rings after using goblin. And that's why tobacco becomes referred to as pipeweed to the delight of stoners everywhere. Why? Because tobacco is from North America and the word is not Anglo-Saxon and very, very post-1492. Same goes for tomato and potato, of course. Though they both appear, potatoes most famously in Sam's food debate with Gollum, this is because Tolkien recognized that spuds are now too much a part of British culture to avoid. So he let that one go. He didn't even change the name. The Jackson films uh, make me laugh because there are tomatoes all over the place and the inclusion of um, actors of color, no matter that there were none in Anglo-Saxon England, is a must for an adaptation of modern times where people are being all put out about black people and yet tomatoes are wrong or 
if you want to use an ungrammatical adjective. The inclusion of Elrond, Sauron, and especially Galadriel in this series had led to complaints about this series and how it will ruin these characters' second age stories. Bullcrap. We know nothing almost about their second age stories. That it's a great idea to do this, to flesh them out. If seeing Galadriel with a sword freaks you out, and you need to remember that each subsequent rewrite of the Silmarillion, Tolkien added more Galadriel. She was a really late addition in Lord of the Rings. Even Tolkien didn't know much of her story about the Second Age, and so I think this this series is going to do a better job than he would have done. I know he wouldn't agree with that, but I can say that. As for Sauron, this is the perfect time to depict him on film. He has the one ring, but he isn't using it yet. He's still in his fair form, so he basically looks like an elf. He builds an evil temple on the island of Numenor, and he corrupts the citizens, leading to the crisis. This is beautiful prequel territory. Listen, a show this anticipated cannot possibly please everyone, but those who claim it'll ruin something miss the point of what the published Silmarillion, and especially the Akabaleth, as short as it is, is. There's nothing definitive to ruin, and there's lots of room for creativity. True, it's Hollywood, parts will suck. The Hobbit had a dwarf elf love story. Need I say more? But I'm going to be cautiously optimistic. So why don't you check back with me later this fall to see what I think after this show's been published. Thanks. I want to thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed my podcast, please feel free to give me a rating and review. Episodes come out at the beginning and middle of pretty much every month. Have a great day.